Turn with me to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, and tonight we're going to speak about Israel's preeminence. And we've said before that the entire book of Exodus is about Israel. But we're going to move quickly away from focusing on Israel, really, to focusing on the reason that Israel is preeminent, the chosen nation among among all nations. And that is very simply, as we just have sung, that God chose her. And so our focus very quickly will become God. Israel is preeminent because God decided she is preeminent. And that's the way it was, that's the way it is now, and that's the way it will be um, into eternity Um, In our nation today, we have, um, among our own lawmakers, probably the most anti-Semitism I've ever seen um, in my adult life. Not not just not pro-Israel, but anti-Israel, anti-Jew. They are now being said by our own lawmakers that Israel is like Nazi Germany used to be. And it's a complete lie. It's an other fabrication. Um, And we see that theologically as well. That theologically, if you want to go down the road of saying that God will never again restore Israel, how can you say that when what we see in the entire book of Exodus, a, a, a huge book of our Bible devoted to God's love for his people? And so that's a, I think that's a, a, a careless road to go down theologically. It's a careless road to go down historically because Israel is preeminent. I mean, the end of all things shows New Jerusalem coming down onto a new earth. What country would you put New Jerusalem in? I I think it would go in Israel. And so tonight we'll look at Israel's preeminence, but it'll focus very quickly upon the Lord. I want to set up a little picture for us. The sun has just gone down and we enter at dinner time into the hope of a Jewish family. And they're in Israel. They're in the time of the Apostles. Well, let's put them a few decades after the ascension of Christ into heaven. This is a special evening. This is Passover. This is the celebration and the remembrance of Israel's rescue from Israel. Earlier that day, the head of the home, we'll give him a good Jewish name, Benjamin. Benjamin has taken the selected Passover lamb. He's taken it to the temple to be sacrificed. When he arrived, all the men arriving with their lambs were being organized and assigned to groups They would come together in the temple courtyard, and when his group was called, the Levite singers sang to them from the Hallel, from Psalms 113 to 118. In the presence of a priest, Benjamin killed his own Passover lamb. The blood was collected and tossed onto the altar by the priest, and then the lamb carcass was taken home to be roasted. When the meal was ready, it was customary to recline on pillows at a low table, And this was important. This was the act of a free person. A slave was required to stand and to serve. But the family would sit, reclining at this low table, reminding them that they were free. They were freed from the bondage of Egypt. The Passover meal was essentially a worship service. It lasted several hours with various elements explained by the head of the home, by Benjamin, as we'll call him, as the meal progressed. But this is a special Passover. Because Benjamin and his wife had recently come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Son of God, the promised Messiah. They're still devout Jews, and for now they would continue to keep the Passover, at least in memory of God's mighty act of salvation at the Exodus. They're not under the law, but Passover was going to continue in their home, at least for this year. Because Benjamin has a purpose. 
And he wants to speak to his children and a typical Jewish family in that time, they would have children ranging from their mid-twenties all the way down to toddlers still. And so he begins to tell the story of the Exodus and his hope is to show them that the same God who saved Israel also has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save Israel and all others who would believe on him for the forgiveness of sins. And so if our fictitious Benjamin were to speak to his family about the God of the Exodus, what might he say? Well, in his opening statement, he might make certain to explain what the point of the rescue of Israel is not, that we're not going to moralize this. The rescue of Israel from Egypt and the Red Sea crossing, uh, this is not a moral lesson that when your back is against the wall, God will come through. It's not a moral lesson that when you cry out to God, the waters of trouble will part for you. It's not a moral lesson that when the Egyptians of your life are upon you, God will make a way. Why? Well, because the Exodus account really isn't about you, it's about God. It is all about him. And so staying true to the intent of the text of Exodus 12 and following, Benjamin would begin to speak of God. And so we'll follow an outline just to speak of God. First, we'll speak of the requirement of God. The requirement of God. Israel is preparing for the... For the final plague which will come upon Egypt, God is going to institute a remembrance of the rescue that he's about to effect for his people. In fact, the month in which this took place on the Jewish calendar is the month of Nisan, which would be March or April on our calendar. And this would start their year. This would be the beginning. This is their new year. Look with me at Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So this is how they begin their year. Every household or a combination of small households was to take a lamb. They would choose the lamb on the 10th of the month. They would slaughter and eat the lamb on the 14th of the month. And on this particular occasion, Israel was to take the blood of the lamb and wipe it on the door frames of their homes. And God gave them specific instructions about the Passover meal. In fact, they were to eat it as it were ready to travel because of what was about to happen to them. Chapter 12, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God gave them more specifics about how they were to celebrate Passover each year. Passover was to happen concurrently with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For the Jews, unleavened bread was a reminder that They had hurried out of Egypt. They didn't have time to wait for bread to rise in the normal fashion. And in fact, later in Scripture, the idea of leaven, of yeast, would be used to illustrate the pervasive nature of sin. And thus, unleavened bread was used to symbolize holiness and purity. These instructions were given to Moses, who now, in turn, gave them to the elders of Israel. And this is a family-centered event, which is really our first foundation of the idea of family worship, by the way. Exodus 12, verse 26, near the end of the chapter. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, 
For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And when they heard this, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So Israel did what was commanded of them. And God will now unleash his wrath upon Egypt and release his people Israel. Verse 29 At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you, as you have said and be gone and bless me also. God was gracious to Israel and spared her firstborn children. And as a result, look with me at chapter 13, verse one. Because of God's mercy, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. From then on, every firstborn child, even every firstborn animal, required a sacrifice to purchase it back from God, to redeem it, to redeem the child, to redeem even the animal. So what has Israel learned is the requirement of God. What they've learned is that redemption is based in shed blood. That there must be blood. The wages of sin is death. Sin must be paid for to appease the righteous indignation of a holy God. And so now for the first time in the Bible, God has institutionalized and required a sacrifice on a regular basis to deal with sin. Blood must be shed. Well, back in Benjamin's home, the littlest children are still trying to grasp something and that is the fact that the little lamb that they took into their home for almost four days, the, the, they picked the cutest lamb, the, the smallest, the most adorable, the perfect lamb. It was to be spotless. It was to be without blemish. And that lamb was among them, and the, the children would get to know this lamb. But that's the same lamb that's now on their table, slaughtered and roasted. A vivid reminder, a vivid instruction that redemption costs. It costs a life. And so Benjamin has spoken of the requirement of God. Now he'll speak of the salvation of God. The salvation of God. Go back with me to chapter 12, verse 33. Chapter 12, verse 33. The the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. And per Moses' instructions, the Israelites asked their Egyptian neighbors for their silver, their gold, their clothing. And since God had prepared the hearts of the Egyptians, they gave them everything they asked. And so they plundered the wealth of the Egyptians. They left Egypt with tremendous wealth. And after 430 years in Egypt, chapter 12, verse 37 says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about 600 miles 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. God made himself manifest among them by a pillar of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire at night, chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. But now the people were trapped against the Red Sea, 
And Pharaoh had come to his senses. He gathered his army, and now he's in pursuit. And what is the greatest rescue in the history of the Bible and really of mankind? God parted the waters of the Red Sea. Israel entered in to cross, and as Pharaoh's army came after them, God released the waters and decimated Pharaoh's army. And what did this do for Israel? What was the point of this fantastic rescue? Look at the very end of chapter 14. The end of chapter 14. This was the point. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And now in celebration, Moses and Israel sing what has become known as the Song of Moses, which we read a moment ago. Then Moses in chapter 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And over and over again, this song extols the might and the power of Yahweh to save, this, his incredible saving power. Verse 1, the Lord has triumphed. Verse 2, the Lord is my salvation. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. Verse 6, the Lord is glorious in power and shatters his enemies. And God's mission to show who he really is has succeeded wildly. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And because of God's might now displayed, the Canaanites whom God will give over to Israel in judgment, they're terrified. Verses 14 through 16 speak of those peoples who are trembling, they're dismayed, they're in dread. And in verse 17, Moses reiterates the land promise made to Abraham, made to Isaac, made to Jacob. And now that promise, many hundreds of years after it first being given, is now going to be fulfilled. You will bring them, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever And now going into the promised land, going into Canaan, becomes very symbolic of entering into the kingdom in many ways. And so Benjamin here is reminding his family that salvation from God is by God's choice, by God's grace, by God's favor, by God's power, by God's hesed, steadfast love. Verse 13, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Israel is preeminent because God is a saving God. God made the choice. He chose them before they ever even existed. So our fictitious character, Benjamin, he's shown his family the requirement of God. He's shown them the salvation of God. But a true follower of Yahweh must learn to trust him, must learn to walk with him. And so Benjamin now teaches his family about the power of God, the power of God. And to show his power and to begin to teach Israel to trust him, God sovereignly and immediately orchestrates five emergencies. This morning we spoke about times when the Lord disciplines you. Well, Israel's about to get it in spades. They're five times over. First emergency, chapter 15, beginning in verse 22 
Israel went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And then all of a sudden they came upon water and it was undrinkable. The people quickly replaced their gratitude with grumbling. But God miraculously made the water drinkable and he did it with a lesson. Look at chapter 15, verse 25, the second half of the verse. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. This is a teaching moment. They, they didn't believe. They were, they were scared. They were grumbling. And because it was a teaching moment, did you notice there was, there was no bad consequences? The Lord didn't do anything. This time, but he would expect him to learn. Later in Numbers 10, the people complained once again. Numbers 10 verse 1 says, And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But not yet. This is their first test. They failed miserably, but the Lord was gracious and taught them through it. Then we get to a second emergency in chapter 16. The people set out once again. One month to the day after the Exodus, they probably still had sand from the bottom of the Red Sea in their sandals. It's that, been that recently. But they've forgotten already. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So, graciously, God told Moses that he was about to rain bread from heaven. Again, this was to teach them to trust and obey God. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron told the people that they would see the glory of God by his provision. In the evening, quail came and covered the camp to provide for them. And in the morning, in their first experience of manna, they saw, chapter 16, verse 14, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. They gathered all they needed and no one lacked anything at all. But here was the point of this emergency. Chapter 16, verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. They still wanted to rely on themselves instead of learning to walk with the Lord, instead of learning to trust the Lord. Then they received instructions. On the sixth day, on Friday, they were to gather twice as much. And this time they could save the leftovers for the next day. And in basic terms, very, very simple terms, the Lord has now introduced the concept of Sabbath to them. This would become the sign of the covenant that God would make with them. And this is important to remember. The Lord is slowly easing them into this. These were people that had been enslaved for generations. They worked seven days a week to barely survive. And now God is telling them to do no work for themselves on the Sabbath. Some of them just couldn't do it. They couldn't trust the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 27. 
On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Israel needed to learn to trust in the provision of God and to rest in God. They had a third emergency. Again, there's no water to drink. Chapter 17, verse 2. It's a great object lesson when you're in the middle of the desert. You can do that over and over again. Chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And so the Lord instructed Moses to go to a certain rock. He was to use the same staff that he'd used to cause the Nile to turn to blood. A sign that the same God was still working, by the way. And Moses was to strike the rock. And in verse 6 of chapter 17, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The basic lesson was to remind them that their powerful God was with them. Because in fact, they had tested the Lord. Look at the very end of verse 7. They had said, is the Lord among us or not? And so he showed them that he is. Now he brings them to a fourth emergency. And now they face an enemy once again. But this time there's no miraculous intervention, so to speak, of a Red Sea behind them closing in over their enemies. Now they have to face this enemy head to head. They must personally engage in battle. Chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Moses would hold the staff up and Israel would start winning. And when he took a break and his arms came down, Amalek began to win. But when Moses' arms were held up, by Aaron and her, Israel prevailed. The lesson here is that the people of God will not prevail in their own power. They're weak. They're powerless. They must have the Lord. They must trust in their powerful God. And then he brings them a fifth emergency. In chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he meets up with Moses and Israel. Chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, we just learned this when we get to this text, but at some point during the plagues and the confrontation with, with Pharaoh, Moses had sent his family away. He had sent them to go back to Midian, to his original family, to uh, his wife's original family, rather, probably to be safe in uncertain times and to allow Moses to focus solely on this confrontation. And so in chapter 18, verse 5, he's bringing them back. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And in Jethro, we have an object lesson who is called the, the priest of Midian, meaning he was likely some sort of mystic who didn't necessarily believe that the God of Moses was the one true God. But now listen to his confession. Verse 11 of chapter 18, this is Jethro speaking, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Jethro acknowledged his sin. How do we know this? Because he brought a sacrifice. And he offered a sacrifice. He needed the forgiveness of the one true God. But that's not the emergency. That's the crisis. That is a, a buildup to the crisis. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And he did this all day. He listened to disputes. And Moses was consumed with this. 
And it would, in verse 18, it would wear him out. And so in the providence of God, God had sent wise old Jethro to tell Moses that he should set up a court system made up of godly men of integrity. Now what was the lesson? The lesson was even Moses, the mighty man of God, could not keep Israel in his power. He couldn't do it. Verse 18 says, you are not able to do it alone. So once again, you must rely on the power of God. And so through these five emergencies, God taught Israel that they must rely on his power. They must trust him. They must believe in him. They must walk with him in other dependence. Well, Benjamin has taught his family of the requirement of God, of the salvation of God, of the power of God. But now Benjamin tells his children, I want you to see the glory of God, the glory of God. And to do that, we have to return to the Red Sea. Turn with me back to chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse 20. And we walked through this text at the Steadfast Bible Conference, I think, four years ago. I'll be honest with you, about 10% of the reason I'm preaching through the Pentateuch is so we could do this passage again. The Red Sea is a spectacular illustration of the glory of God, so we're going to spend some time on the glory of God. In chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, we get the escape plan. Here's God's escape plan. Chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Now the actual locations of Succoth and Etham are a matter of some debate, but one thing that that scholars and biblical archaeologists agree on is that it was the straightest line out of Egypt. It was a beeline. Let's get out of here. That was the route. Exodus 38 tells us there were 603,550 men, and so with women and children, easily two to three million Israelites, some estimates have gone as high as five or six million, to take the quickest route out. Now, the Egyptians, although this is an ancient culture, they had a, they had a well-organized and a, a powerful military that patrolled its own borders. The Israelite movements would have been reported up the chain of command pretty quickly to Pharaoh's military advisors. And what was reported to Pharaoh? What did he hear? Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Let me translate this. God said, turn around, go where you'll be trapped, and camp backwards. That's what he said. Now, why would this catch Pharaoh's attention? Israel turning around and camping at Pihaharath. Chapter 14, verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. In Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? What was changing? What was changing was it looked like Israel had suddenly gone crazy. It looked like that they, they just lost their compass. Now, God had just nailed Egypt And Pharaoh, time and time and time again, he defeated the so-called gods of Egypt in the plagues. He capped it off with the death of all the firstborn of Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son. And Pharaoh had surrendered. He said, up, go, be gone. But now, 
Verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God has hardened Pharaoh's heart one last time. After being pulverized by God, how is God going to accomplish the hardening of Pharaoh's heart this last time? Well, to the Egyptians, the gods and the goddesses who controlled the world were unpredictable. They were changeable. They were erratic. They weren't considered omnipresent. They weren't present everywhere all the time, but they could manifest themselves at certain locations, certain times, and in certain situations, and then suddenly leave. And it was unpredictable. Egyptian deities were considered to be gods who were not always present with their people. The God of Moses, who to Pharaoh would just be another in the long list of gods, had really demonstrated his power with the plague, so much so that Pharaoh came to the conclusion, your God is here, he's present, he is right here, right now, and he's beat all my gods, so to speak. But all of a sudden, it looks like Israel just, just is like a balloon with all the air let out of it. It just goes crazy on the map. They're wandering aimlessly. They changed direction, and now they've camped themselves into a dead end facing the wrong direction. What would Pharaoh's conclusion be? What would he assume? Well, very simply, aha, their God has left. Their God has abandoned them. And so now Pharaoh was going to throw everything he had at them. Militarily, it was important for him to do it immediately while Israel was seemingly confused and while they were encumbered by their wives and their children and their livestock and their possessions. Uh, Can you imagine as a soldier going to battle but trying to bring your Winnebago along with you also? That's not going to work. And so God had a plan. He was going to use Pharaoh for that plan. What was his plan? His plan was to get glory over Pharaoh. God had already gotten glory over Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, but now God was including the entire army of Pharaoh in his plan to humiliate this proudest of all men. And so God's wisdom here is amazing. He, he sets and springs a perfect trap. Chapter 14, verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Let me stop right there. Elsewhere in the Pentateuch, we hear that Israel went out in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are literally burying their dead from the 10th plague. And Israel is going out defiantly. They just took all of their stuff. Israel is leaving as the first culture in that time period to have ever conquered Egypt, essentially. And they never fired a shot or an arrow. They just walked out with everything. And so, of course, they left defiantly. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea, by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. Verse 6 says, Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Literally in Hebrew, his people with him. His army is really a different word in in Hebrew, and it's mentioned using that more specific word in verse 9. But this is really important for us because Pharaoh had civilian advisors and officials who went with him. In other words, he took everybody. He took the Secretary of State. He took the Secretary of Interior. He just said, everybody who's mine, you're all going. And we're going to see 
my victory over Israel. He didn't necessarily lead the battle charge himself. That's what the charioteers and the army was for. The force that Pharaoh brought to pursue and attack Israel was comprehensive. He was bringing everything he had. This is very clear here in this text. All of his chariots, all of his horses, all of his horsemen, all of his army. Now, what is it about chariots that's so scary? Well, they were a a formidable military weapon in ancient times. They were used primarily for taking flat terrain. The Israelites were still in Egypt proper when they camped at Pi-Haharoth and They must have seemed like easy prey for Pharaoh's chariot-based army. How many chariots did he have? It says 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. A normal chariot team had a driver who was also the shield bearer to protect the second man who was a specialist. He was a bowman or a spearman. The chosen chariots carried the officers and they, so they would have a third man commanding not only his chariot but a group of other chariots. The chariots in ancient Egypt were organized into platoons of 10, squads of 50, and battalions of 250. And so we have here the 600 chosen chariots. If they're speaking, if this is speaking at the very least of a troop commander of 10, then these 600 chosen chariots are commanding 6,000 chariots, 12,000 men in the chariots plus the commanders. And if the chosen chariots commanded the squads, then we're talking about 30,000 chariots and 60,000 soldiers. This is not out of the realm of possibility. In fact, there's other Bible events that describe armies of this size. 1 Samuel 13, the Philistines came with 30,000 chariots, the same number that's probably here. So this wasn't just a token force. This wasn't just a a, a SEAL team. This wasn't one little contingent. This was all the other chariots of Egypt, all of them. Each chariot, by the way, had a group of foot soldiers, chariot runners that accompanied them. They, They rarely went at full speed. It's still likely that the Israelites actually outnumber the Egyptians. But the sight of thousands of Egyptian chariots would be terrifying. Why is this? Well, let me tell you what is so terrifying about Egyptian chariot tactics. The reason Egypt was so dominant in battle is that they are in that entire time period of the ancient Near East, they're basically the only culture to fight aggressively. Now, what do I mean by that? Almost every other major culture simply took thousands of men and overwhelmed you with superior force that you just took ranks of men and just kept plowing them into the battle until you finally won. The Egyptians didn't do that. They were aggressive. They were hostile. They were, uh, they were mean and they were smart because here's what the charioteers did. The chariot platoons would approach the enemy in angled lines so they would come not in a straight line but in an angled line and when the horses got up to full speed these are the best horses in Egypt they're running 40 miles an hour the archers in the chariots are specialists they're extremely accurate the first archer in the diagonal line would begin to fire his arrows and they could fire many many arrows in the in the time of even just a minute They would start to fire arrows at the front line of the enemy and continue firing as that first chariot began to turn and go around. So what would you see? Eventually you would see circles of chariots coming at you while the archers were firing. Thousands and thousands of arrows coming all at once. 
The enemy lines would be broken and chaotic, and the Egyptian infantry would attack at that point. Egyptian archers were extremely well-trained. In fact, archaeology has uncovered paintings of entire training facilities just for the archers. They were specialists. By this time in, in ancient history, they used highly prized, sophisticated composite bows made from wood, animal bone, horn, leather, and other materials. The bow was so valued that the bowman had a special case to carry it around in. It would be about six feet long, and with this composite multi-bend design, they could shoot an arrow accurately about 250 yards, but they could just shoot the arrow much, much farther than that, double that distance. In other words, they had the capability to wipe out Israel before they ever got within 100 yards of them. They could just simply keep their circling chariots going and absolutely decimate them. So that would have been terrifying. The people of Israel had marched out defiantly in verse 8, literally boldly. They were uplifted in spirit for the moment by the favor of God shown in the plagues, by the fear that God had placed in the hearts of the Egyptians right after the first Passover and the death of the Egyptian firstborn. But not anymore. Now Israel's pinned against the Red Sea. Israel had been in Egypt 400 years. They knew the tactics of the Egyptian army and they knew they didn't have a chance. Chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now fear overwhelms the people. The sight of Egypt's chariots have, has given Israel sudden amnesia about the power of God in his recent work on their behalf. And they come up with a sudden reinvention of the facts. There's no indication that Israel had somehow been forced to leave Egypt. They were all too glad to go to accept freedom from slavery. But now they have a revisionist version of history. They complain to Moses, we told you this was a bad idea. Verse 11 is very sarcastic. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? What is Egypt famous for? Graves. Tombs. I mean, when we think of ancient Egypt, we think of pyramids and mummies and tombs. In fact, the Great Pyramid of Giza was already a thousand years old at the, ex at the time of the Exodus. And so they're being sarcastic. From a purely human standpoint, Israel was doomed. Pharaoh was so certain of his victory that he brought his people, he brought his entourage to watch him get glory over the God of Israel. But through Moses, God assures Israel that all glory will go to Yahweh and he'll take all glory from Pharaoh. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And by the way, this is a fine hour for Moses' leadership. Moses trusted in the might of the Lord and guess what? He didn't even know the plan yet. And yet he led his people to have faith. I can imagine him whispering to the Lord, this is going to work out, right? This is, we're all going to be good here. But now Moses gets the plan. 
Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? He's speaking to him as representing the people. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. What is God's plan? It's to do a double whammy. He will effect the rescue of Israel and decimate his enemy, the Egyptian army at the same time. And by the way, this is key because Israel will never have to look over their shoulder waiting for Egypt to come and get revenge. Now, we have to clarify this point here. We heard this in the song in chapter 15, and we hear it now in chapter 14, that they will go over the sea, through the sea, on dry ground. Not muddy, not mildly wet, not even moist. And how do we know it's dry? Well, there's a practical reason we know it's dry, because no experienced chariot officer would take their chariot brigades into mud. They would never do that. But even so, chariots and water don't mix. Why would they pursue? Well, because God inclined their hearts to do so. Verse 17 tells us that. Now, God had just told Moses to tell Israel to break camp, to get ready to move, but there's an army ready to attack. And so two things happen at once. Now it's showtime. It's time for God to display his glory. And these two things are happening simultaneously. First of all, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 14, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So you have the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, the pillar of cloud, the visible manifestation of the glory of God, who had led them, now moves to a protective position between them and the Egyptian army. Now, the last phrase there that I read in verse 20 is somewhat obscure in Hebrew, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. It is a translation challenge, but we can take apart the basic elements of the phrase to understand it, to help us piece it together. You have the cloud of the Lord, which comes between Egypt and Israel, The cloud had darkness and it had light and the darkness didn't come near the light all night long. So what do we surmise from this? Well, the cloud not only protectively separated the Egyptians from the Israelites, but cast the Egyptians into the pitch black of night and lit up the side of the Israelites so that they could pack up and leave. Now, why would they have the courage to do this? Because happening at the same time, Simultaneously, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The same staff by which Moses had inflicted plagues on Egypt is now in his outstretched hand. Verse 16 tells us this, the Lord uses his own forces of a massive wind to divide the waters. And then we see in one of the most famous scenes in all the Bible, Verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Now, we've all seen this either in the movies or in artist renditions, water piled up on either side as the Israelites march in a long line, a single file line usually right between these walls of water. In, in many renditions, it looks like the walls of water are just a few yards apart as Israel trudges through. And because of that, for generations, people have tried to explain this away as not quite miraculous or tried to diminish it in some sense. Some would say that Israel wasn't actually at the Red Sea. It's very popular to translate that phrase, the Sea of Reeds, like a marsh or a swamp, but that's really based on a faulty language assumption. Or others say that Israel must have been going through some sort of lake or bog or swamp, or at the very most was a really, really, really shallow part of the Red Sea. Now, those alternative theories really downplay the scale of the miracle by placing the Red Sea as someplace other than the Gulf of Suez. The Gulf of Suez is 195 miles long, an average depth of 131 feet, between 12 and 27 miles wide, depending on where you are. That's the northwest extension of the Red Sea. So it's going this way from your vantage point. Or maybe it's the other arm of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. That's 100 miles long, 15 miles wide, and over a mile deep in some places. Both of those, the, the northwestern arm and the northeastern arm of the Red Sea, both are referred in the Old Testament to as the Red Sea, since they're connected to it. But never in the Old Testament does Red Sea refer to a, a bog or a lake or a marsh, ever. And there's been some remarkable scholarship in recent years to show that the Gulf of Aqaba on the northeastern side of the Red Sea was probably an impossible place for the crossing. That's not an option anymore. So we're left with the western arm, the Gulf of Suez, on the border of Egypt. Now, if if the Israelites were right near the northern tip, all Egypt had to do was just go up and around. That's all they had to do. They would have just caught up. And the entire northern section of the western coastline is made up of rocky, craggy mountains and cliffs that would make it impossible for two to three million people to camp on. So there's no way that Israel was camped at the top of this, the Gulf of Suez. So they were down lower. They were down farther to the south. And so this narrows the crossing point down to just a few possible places where there's flat ground and terrain for Israel to camp and a place where the Egyptian army would think that chariots were a good idea. Why is this important? Because geographically speaking, God has brought them to the deepest waters of the Gulf of Suez, of the Red Sea. It's been calculated that a 50-foot wide rank of people would make a line one to 200 miles long Uh, with that many Israelites, so the path through the Red Sea had to be wide. It had to be big. They crossed the sea or finished the crossing during the morning watch. Verse 24 tells us this. This is between about 2 and 6 a.m. And they were all the way through before dawn. Verse 27. If they walked a 1,000 people across in a line, then the sea would have to open a mile wide, and they would be extended back almost two miles But they had flocks and herds and possessions, so they would require a larger space. So it is absolutely not outside of the realm of possibility that the waters opened in a two-mile-wide gap, or maybe even more, so that Israel could just push across in a wide group and do so quickly. Now, how big a wall of water is that? Well, this is very, very deep water. 
and a very broad estimate of the volume of water that was being held back by God is something on the order of all of Lake Tahoe, which is the sixth largest lake in the nation by water volume, being cut in half and stacked up. That's what they walked between. And so if you've seen in artist renditions or in the movies a a little wall of water where you can see the top of it, probably the top of it you couldn't see. It probably just went up almost endlessly. And so the pillar of cloud is keeping the Egyptians at bay and in the darkness, massively high walls of waters a couple of miles apart with three million Israelites crossing at night with their way lit up by the angel of the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's glorious. That is a display of the glory of God like none other. Israel reached the eastern bank. It seems likely that they were either all the way across or most of the way across before God allowed Egypt to pursue them. And now God turns his sights on the Egyptians, those who had defied him ten times over. Chapter 14, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Five problems hit the Egyptians all at one time. First of all, they unwisely pursued Israel into the midst of a sea. Who does that? Why wasn't there one commander who said, hang on, let's just look at this here for a moment. See that wall of water? Not excited about that. But you know why they did it? A, God put it on their heart to do it. And B, do you want to be the one to go back to Pharaoh and say, we chickened out? That's not going to happen. Second problem they had, God panicked their minds. In verse 24, literally they were confused. They were, there was chaos. Verse 24 says, The Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. And this is the idea of, by the way, the first time the pillar of fire is mentioned in this story, this is the idea of the full fury of the glory of God like coming down on top of you, right on top of them. Third problem that hit them, they had trouble with their chariot wheels. It says that the wheels were clogging. This is not speaking of mud. Remember, uh, no Egyptian officer would lead his whole squad into a bog. Clogging is a, it's a Hebrew word that means to bind or to come off, to be removed. And it says, so that they drove heavily. Now, Egypt was proud of the fact, by the way, that they had the best engineered chariots in the world. They were the lightest. They were the most maneuverable. The wheel design with six spokes was incredibly strong and stable And yet now the chariot wheels quit working or started coming off. If you're a chariot driver and your wheels come off, that's very discouraging. That's just a real bummer. Fourth problem that hits them, they lost confidence. Too little, too late. The theology of the Egyptian army was corrected. God is fighting for them and against us. And the fifth problem is not recorded in this text, but it's recorded in Psalm 77, a massive thunderstorm. As if your chariot's not working, going out of your mind with panic isn't enough. Psalm 77, beginning in verse 17, tells us, The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. So they're in darkness, yet the fire of the glory of God is over them with flashes of thunder and and lightning as they're in a massive rainstorm. So the... Chariots that still did have wheels now have a mud problem. 
This is the wrath of God against the ungodly. It was God's plan to get glory for himself. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. How did God get glory over Pharaoh? The case for an early exodus, 1446 B.C., this has been really thoroughly established from within Scripture itself, and it's, it's very supported by external evidence as well. And this means that we know who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. His name was Amenhotep II, and he was 26 years old at the time of the Exodus, being confronted by an 80-year-old Moses. How did God get glory over Amenhotep II, the most powerful man on earth who would dare attack God's own people? How did he get glory over him? God left him alive. He left him alive. If you look closely at all the texts on the defeat of Pharaoh, Exodus 14, Psalm 136, there's no text in Scripture that explicitly says that Pharaoh himself died. He was at some distance behind with his civilian entourage. Remember that? He brought his audience with him. The mummified remains of Amenhotep were discovered and positively identified in 1898. He didn't die in the Red Sea. God let him live to see God win. He let him live 30 more years with the humiliation of his other defeat. He let him live knowing that God had killed his oldest son in judgment. We know some things about Amenhotep II. He had at least three sons. His third son ruled immediately after him. His second son had become a priest until his death. But there's a son older than the other two. A likeness of him was found in tomb number 64 in the city of Thebes. And he's pictured only as a little boy sitting on the lap of a royal teacher, his personal tutor. There are no adult images of that firstborn son because he died in the 10th plague. We also know from four different archaeological sites that in November of 1446, just a few months after the exodus of Israel, Amenhotep did something very unusual. He went out in the wintertime on a raid He went on an Asiatic raid with a small force and he brought back 101,128 slaves, more than 1,000 new chariots, 13,500 new weapons. Why? Amenhotep had to go shopping for more slaves and for a new army because he didn't have one. We also know that his foreign policy changed radically in that year. Prior to that, his foreign policy was aggression and intimidation with all the surrounding nations. And suddenly, his foreign policy was peace and brotherhood. Why? Because he didn't have an army. So he had to get along. And he lived the rest of his life knowing that the God of Israel had gotten glory over him. He would live 30 more years until God would get glory over him face to face. Now, the tone of this breathtaking story becomes somber. It becomes humbling. Verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And then as we read earlier, verse 31, they believed the Lord. 
Well, Benjamin has taught his children the requirement of God, the salvation of God, the power of God, the glory of God. But what he was really working toward, and if you'll indulge me just for another moment, Benjamin would tell them of the Son of God. One of the reasons Benjamin and his wife in our story believed on the Lord Jesus Christ was how clearly God used the Exodus to provide hints and shadows and analogies and pictures of the coming Messiah. Now, for the sake of time, I'll just mention seven pictures of Messiah. Jesus, the Passover lamb. Jesus, the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And just as the Jews must sacrifice the Passover lamb to escape the slaughter that fateful night in 1446 B.C., Acts 4, 12 says of Christ, there is salvation in no one else. Jesus, the Passover lamb. There's a second picture. Jesus, the better Moses. Jesus, the better Moses. Moses played the part of a king-like savior who defeats the enemies of God by God's power. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the savior and he defeats enemies by his own power. There's a third picture. The Red Sea as symbolizing death of self. The Red Sea is symbolizing death of self. This death of self comes by faith in Christ. The Israelites were trapped in a place of certain death, and yet God didn't take them around it. He brought them through it. They had to give in to the fact that they were walking into a death trap. The New Testament makes a spiritual connection between the Red Sea and baptism, by the way, as both symbolizing passing from one state to another. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2 says that Israel passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses, meaning he was leading them into the only way of salvation. Israel went through this place of death and emerged in life on the other side. That's the same imagery that baptism gives to us, that we're baptized into the death and raised in the resurrection of Christ. There's a fourth image, the death of death itself. The death of death itself, and this is through Christ. Those who pursued Israel to slaughter were themselves slaughtered by the angel of the Lord, the presence of God with Israel, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, by the way. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, in imagery which reminds us of the Red Sea, that death is swallowed up in victory. And this victory is given to the believer only through Christ. We have a fifth image, Jesus is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the bread from heaven. When Israel received manna in the wilderness, the provision of this life-giving bread without cost, given miraculously to them, little did they know that the Lord Jesus would in essence replicate this miracle. John 6 records his miraculous feeding of 5,000 men plus wives and children. And his explanation is that he is the true bread from heaven. We have a sixth image that Jesus provides the living water of salvation. Jesus provides the living water of salvation. Twice in this event did God miraculously supply water. And we're reminded very poignantly of the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4. And he told her that he could give her what? Living water. He could give her salvation without cost. And the final picture that perhaps our fictitious friend Benjamin could share is that Jesus is the rock of salvation. Jesus is the rock of salvation. In Exodus 17, God told Moses, 
Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. This is very unusual. For God to say, I will stand before you, that's odd. Because to say that I will stand before you indicates subordination. It indicates making yourself vulnerable. It indicates you may do to me as you wish. You may injure me. You may strike me. In fact, to show the opposite here in Genesis 18, verse 22, Abraham stood before the Lord, but at the rock of Horeb, the Lord says, I will stand before you. In essence, that you may strike me, that you may strike the rock. And Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel, quote, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was struck. The rock was smitten. And life-giving water came as a result. And we're reminded of Isaiah 53.10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Well, Benjamin's children have heard now of the requirement of God that blood must be shed for salvation from sin. They've heard of the salvation of God, that God alone can effect the miracle of salvation. They've heard of the power of God, that the true believer must place his trust in the wisdom and the sovereign care of God. They've certainly heard of the glory of God, that God will get glory and he may do so through our lives. And that is to be our prayer And then they've heard of the Son of God, the one who is the focus of the glory of God, the culmination of the glory of God, the one who is the rock from which the living waters of salvation come. Listen, I hope you've seen tonight that the Exodus account makes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ recognizable, very recognizable. He is the Messiah. It's no wonder that on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples of Jesus, Jesus preached to them, Luke 24 says, And beginning with Moses, beginning with the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus wanted to teach about Jesus, where did he start? In the Pentateuch. In the Pentateuch. I hope that God is as big to you as he has been to Israel in this time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you have made yourself clearly known, and you have given us ample evidence to believe upon you. You've given us ample evidence to understand your greatness and power. And and Lord, in a practical sense, for those of us here who are believers in Christ, trying to just walk through our days and and make it through the difficulties and the, the pains and challenges of life, looking at the incident at the Red Sea and all the, the challenges, the emergencies that you brought along and brought Israel through. We're so comforted and so encouraged that if you can pile up waters in the tons, if you can decimate armies in the tens of thousands, if you can lead millions of essentially helpless people to freedom, and if certainly you can send your dear son to pay the ultimate penalty for our sins on our behalf, if you can do all that, then us trusting you for each and every day should be easy. And it should be so sweet and so wonderful to look at the same God who defeated the greatest enemy on earth, that he is the one who goes before us. 
the one to whom that we've been promised to go boldly before the throne of grace and to ask. And so, Lord, I thank you. I bless you. On behalf of all these who are here, Lord, I would ask you to bless our hearts with this scripture. Drive it deeply into our souls so that we might live accordingly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.